When you see an all-timer I've been reflecting since memory tent on my pathfinder Quick reminder, never side with a sidewinder Uh, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah Hello and welcome to the Rational Black Thought Podcast I'm your host, Mike Cheatham This is episode number 49 And it's September the 11th, 2021 And the theme for the podcast this week, or the title, uh, is No Lessons Learned. And essentially what I'm going to talk about is the fact that um, this is the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks that happened uh, um, on September 11th, uh, 2001. And I don't think that we have learned anything from that at all. Now, I do want to say that I originally had uh, recorded another version of this podcast, but it came out to be over two hours, so I decided to try to cut it down a bit. Uh, so I changed a few things around, and this is a new recording. So here's what we have uh, for our agenda uh, today. We didn't get any feedback, or I didn't get any feedback, so I'm going to skip the feedback uh, segment. So we'll go on to what's on my mind. As I said, I had originally recorded a version that uh, was about um, the uh, uh, history of the so-called uh, pro-life movement and how it was steeped in um, uh, racism. Uh, but I'm going to save that to next week. So instead, what I'm going to talk about uh, is our reaction to uh, 9-11 and how it was a, a squandering of an opportunity, I think, for uh, healing, uh, reconciliation, and growth. After that, we'll get to news, and uh, first up on the news is going to be breaking news, just some stories that either came in late or that I just didn't want to spend a lot of uh, time on. After that, a story that really pisses me off, and you'll see why once we get to it, but uh, it's titled, In South Africa, Fatal Mix of Race and Vigilantes. After that, I want to talk about uh, a the number of, a great number of conservative radio hosts all across America uh, that are uh, giving their lives uh, for the cause of uh, anti-vaccine and mask uh, deniers. Uh, after that, we'll give a quick update on the California recall uh, election that's going to be happening next week. 
and then I want to talk about a self-proclaimed prophet of God who says that God is getting pissed off when people laugh at him because he made some uh, predictions that didn't come true. Uh, last up for the news, I want to talk about an ex-prosecutor uh, that was just indicted this week um, uh, for mishandling the case of uh, Ahmad Aubrey's murder. Uh, and so uh, we'll get some details on that. Uh, that'll be it for the news. And then we'll get to the segment, This Shit is for Us. And in this week's segment of This Shit is for Us, I want to talk about the making of a black race trader. And uh, you'll see exactly what I'm going to cover once we get to that segment. Uh, after that, we'll go with Bible study with Atheist Mike. And this week, I want to talk about the history of the Bible. Not the history depicted in the Bible, but the history of the Bible itself. Uh, and then after that, uh, we'll close out the podcast. And uh, I want to close out the podcast this week uh, with a memorial of sorts to uh, Michael Williams, uh, the actor uh, who died uh, presumably from an overdose uh, this week. So that's our agenda. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll get to the segment, What's on My Mind. Welcome back. So as I um, said in the intro, uh, I had originally recorded a different uh, version of what's on my mind, but uh, because it turned out the episode turned out to be too long and also because this is the anniversary of 9-11, uh, I decided to change uh, the topic um, uh, for this week. So what I want to talk about is the fact that uh, this is the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 uh, terrorist attacks that resulted in the destruction of the World Trade Center, killing nearly 3,000 people. Uh, along with that uh, destruction of the World Trade Center, there was a, an attack on the Pentagon uh, that killed hundreds of people when terrorists crashed a plane uh, into the building. And then there were uh, deaths of many more uh, people uh, that happened uh, when the passengers tried to uh, uh, take control of a plane that was um, uh, headed to uh, the to to try and destroy the uh, uh, the White House. So. Um, Many people today and uh, yesterday have been talking about the heroes of that day. People like people that rushed into the World Trade Center uh, before it collapsed to try to save lives. Uh, talk, they talk about the passengers that tried to retake the plane that was headed to the White House. And these were heroic acts. But the U.S.'s response to 9-11 was anything but heroic. And based upon what we're dealing with today... I don't feel we've learned a goddamn thing from that fateful day. Now, for me, I remember that day vividly. I was actually working in Richmond, Virginia, and had just flown from Indianapolis to Richmond on Monday, so the day before that attack. Um, we were in the office working when we got word that the first plane had hit uh, the t one of the Twin Towers. Uh, of course, we all thought, like it was reported at that time, that it was a small plane plane 
Uh, and, but we, we still, uh, like everyone in the office wanted to find out what was going on. So we went online, uh, to try to find out, uh, what was happening, but the internet really wasn't what it is today. And there were so many people across, uh, the country that were trying to access the internet that it got really bogged down. And you really couldn't get any video on what was going on. Um, and uh, the only thing that I was able to get was a, a live audio feed from a news station. Uh, but of course, there was no video, so I couldn't see what was uh, what was going on. And of course, not after not long after the first plane hit, and we had found out that it wasn't a um, uh, a small uh, prop plane, but actually a, a passenger jet that had hit the, hit the first building. Shortly after that, then the second passenger jet hit the other tower. And at that point, of course, we knew that um, it was a terrorist attack. Now, one of the things that I found really odd about that day is that the project manager on the client side uh, that we were working with told all of us, quote, okay, that's enough, let's get back to work, end quote. And that fool seemed to think that it was just another day and that we should just go back to acting like nothing had happened. Uh, but of course we didn't. Nobody could, could continue working that day uh, when the events of 9-11 were still unfolding. So I was listening to the audio feed when one of uh, the reporters uh, said that uh, one of the towers had fallen. Now, I didn't believe it. Uh, I had seen a video. I had been able to get a video briefly before that, and I had saw uh, the uh, tower burning. I, and, of course, they showed the video of the plane hitting both towers. Uh, they also had, I was able to see um, that that morning, um, the individuals that were leaping from uh, the building, uh, trying to get a away from the fire. But though I had saw the building burning, I couldn't imagine that, um, the tower w could have fallen. And, uh, and, it, but it was shortly, of course, after that, uh, maybe another half an hour, an hour, I don't remember the exact uh, timing, uh, but another uh, report came in. And again, it was still audio at this point for me. Uh, that the uh, second tower had fallen as well. So I, uh, uh, that when the first report came in, I didn't believe it, and I basically felt like they were wrong and misreporting. Uh, but of course, after the second report uh, of the second tower, uh, I couldn't say that. And then uh, I was, I had uh, continually been trying to find a video feed. Uh, I eventually was able to do so and uh, was wa just watching in disbelief uh, as the video showed both towers crumbled to the ground. Now, there were two things on my mind um, as I was watching what was going on that day. Uh, the first uh, was that the, um, the fact that I had just been on a, uh, a a plane the day before, and that um, uh, shortly uh, before those events, I had been flying on a plane that had left um, uh, from one of the airports, which the plane uh, was hijacked. So um, I just kind of uh, thought to myself, 
that um, it could have been, it could have very easily been uh, me that was one on, on one of the planes that had hide, been hijacked, and I was thinking about uh, what would I have done had that been the case. Uh, the second thing that was on my mind was uh, years earlier, I had uh, went on vacation to New York City, uh, and uh, in the package that I had purchased, it included dinner in the restaurant uh, called Wendell's on the World at the top of one of the towers in the World Trade Center. And I just remembered how uh, majestic I thought the building seemed at that time. And uh, to be honest, I felt a little sad that uh, that building was no longer there. Now, I didn't know uh, anyone who died um, in the attack, so I was lucky. Uh, there was an employee of the company that I worked for uh, that was in the tower that day and died. And the company made sure that everyone knew his name. Uh, they had a picture of him that they circulated to all employees and told uh, a little bit about his life. But I was lucky because um, I, again, I didn't know anyone uh, who died in the attacks, but um, many were not so lucky and, and many people uh, knew, had family members or friends uh, or uh, uh, very good acquaintances that did die in those attacks. But what did we do as a nation after the attack? Um, it, after the attacks, it was an opportunity for us to pull together as a country and to exhibit a sense of solidarity. And for a short period of time, we did. But before long, our approach uh, detoured from mutual comforting uh, to revenge and blame. And I want to review some comments from an article from the Associated Press that I think makes the point uh, very well. The article states, In the ghastly rubble of the Ground Zero's fallen towers 20 years ago, our zero had arrived, a chance to start anew. World affairs reordered abruptly on that morning of blue skies, black ash, fire, and death. In Iran, chants of death to America quickly gave way to candlelight vigils to mourn the American dead. Vladimir Putin weighed in with substantive help as the U.S. prepared to go to war uh, in Russia's region of influence. Libya's Muammar Gaddafi, a murderous dictator, uh, with a poetic streak, spoke of the, quote, human duty to be with Americans after those horrifying and awesome events, which are bound to awaken a human conscience, end quote. From the first terrible moments, Americans' longstanding allies were joined by longtime enemies in that singularly galvanizing instant. No nation with global standing was cheering the stateless terrorists vowing to conquer capitalism and democracy. How rare is that? Too rare to last, it turned out. Civilizations have their allegories for rebirth in times of devastation. A global favorite is that of the phoenix, a magical and magnificent bird rising from the ashes. In the hellscape of Germany at the end of World War II, it was a concept of our zero or stunt null that offered the opportunity to start anew. For the, for the U.S., the zero hour of September 11, 2001, meant a chance to reshape its place in the post-Cold World world from a high perch of influence and goodwill as it entered into the millennium 
This was only a decade after the collapse of the Soviet Union left America with both moral authority and financial and military muscle to be unquestionably the lone superpower. Those advantages were soon squandered. Instead of a new order, 9-11 fueled 20 years of war abroad. In the U.S., it gave rise to the angry, aggrieved, self-proclaimed patriot and heightened surveillance and suspicion in the blame of common defense. It opened an era of deference to the armed forces as lawmakers pulled back on oversight and let presidents give primacy to the military over law enforcement in the fight against terrorism. And it sparked anti-immigrant sentiment primarily directed at Muslim countries that lingers today. The legacy of 9-11 rippled both in obvious and unusual ways. Most directly, millions of people in the U.S. and Europe go about their public business under the constant gaze of security cameras, while other surveillance tools scoop up private communications. The government layered post-9-11 bureaucracies onto law enforcement to support the expansive security apparatus. Militarization is more evident now from large cities to small towns that now own military vehicles and weapons that seem well out of proportion to any terrorist threat. Government offices have become fortifications and airports a security maze. But as profound as an event as 9-11 was, its immediate effect on how the world has been ordered was temporary, temporary and largely undone by domestic political forces, a global economic downturn, and now a lethal pandemic. The awakening of human conscience predicted by Gaddafi didn't last. Gaddafi didn't last. And that's the end of the article. And for me, I think the awakening of conscience didn't last because that's not what we were focused on. We weren't focused on an awakening of the human spirit. We were focused on otherizing, of assigning blame, and of getting revenge. Today, it is that spirit, that spirit of revenge that dominates. And it is the, it is the basis for the current assault uh, on any one of us that are not white. We are viewed as the enemy. We are viewed as the other. And 9-11 gave uh, the minority group that is in power the tools to be able to trample on our rights with impunity. And they are now accelerating that attack on a daily basis. Voter restrictions, refusals to teach the truth about uh, slavery and racism, institutionalized and systemic uh, discrimination and racism. Anyone that is not white is now viewed to be as much a danger to America as the Muslims were after 9-11. So all of the opportunities that we had to come together as a country, uh, to comfort one, uh, one another, and especially those who had lost family members and loved ones in the tragedy of that day, all of that was squandered and gave way to what America really is. And that is a racist organization that, and, and from the definition of racism that I always use, that has put together um, a process and a system to uh, systematically and systemically extract value from all non-white people 
uh, and to the benefit and to the, uh, uh, to, for the use of those small number of racists, uh, that are now in power. So what we need to do now, um, is to con- first of all, continue to fight against that spirit. Uh, but we need to come together and come together with those who are looking for a- an awakening of the human conscience. Uh, so that we can start to put together um, systems in this country that are based upon a multiracial democracy, that are based on fairness for all, uh, and that rewrite uh, the 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 words that were uh, in the Constitution. Uh, to really mean them about um, all men and women uh, being equal and endowed with in- inalienable rights uh, like love, uh, liberty, and uh, the pursuit of happiness. Uh, until we get there, we're just uh, dealing with a uh, destructive and even self-destructive nation-state uh, that is rapidly uh, moving toward uh, the demise uh, of not only all of us, uh, but itself in the process. All right, uh, that is it for what's on my mind. Uh, we'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we will get to the news. Okay, welcome back. So uh, first up, uh, I just want to go through breaking news. And uh, like I always say, uh, this these are news stories that either came out uh, late, uh, not so late since I'm recording on Thursday, uh, or that it may be something that I just don't want to spend a, a lot of time about. So the first thing up, I, I actually don't even have this one written down, uh, but I'm going to talk about it just briefly. And that is that in uh, Richmond, um, a, um, a, a racist uh, statue of uh, Andrew Jackson was just uh, uh, pulled down, or and uh, the uh, and and primarily, um, I consider that to be a good thing, uh, but I'm not sure that it really shows that there is any movement uh, away from a racist ideology. Um, uh, Virginia, for the most part, is a democratic uh, state, uh, and I believe that the individuals, uh, the the governor especially, who uh, was a proponent of removing this statue, is doing so for political reasons, not necessarily because that's how they really feel. And then the next uh, story in breaking news that I want to talk about is that the Justice Department um, uh, just today, Thursday, um, decided to sue Texas over its recently enacted law that I just talked about uh, in um, what's on my mind uh, that prohibits nearly all abortions in the state, uh, which is the first significant step by the Biden administration to fight uh, the nation's most restrictive ban on abortion. The department argued that the Texas law is unconstitutional because it allows the state to essentially prohibit abortion by deputizing private parties to enforce the new restrictions 
in order to technically comply with the Supreme Court rulings that forbid such a ban. Though I'm generally happy with this action, I feel that Merrick Garland's Justice Department is woefully underperforming. They haven't done shit about all of the states passing voting restrictions, uh, and they haven't um, uh, done anything to hold those uh, responsible for the January 6th uh, insurrection accountable. Garland is acting like a little bitch. He's afraid to go after Trump or any of his supporters. He did the right thing in filing this suit against Texas, but he has a lot more work to do before I view him as doing a good job. All right, now let's get into the regular news. Um, and this first story really pisses me off. I mean, it really pisses me off. Uh, and it pisses me off to the point that my response will be considered racist by some people. And it will appear racist because I believe that the proper counter uh, to the problem presented in this story is something that Marcus Garvey said years and decades and, uh, and probably a century ago, which is that Africa should be for Africans. So let me read this article, and I may skip through some of it uh, instead of reading it all, because like I said, I have 21 pages of notes, and I don't want this to be too long. But anyway, the article says, The blows thundered down, backs, a hammer, a field hockey stick, as Nijabolo uh, de Lamani lay curled on the pavement trying to summon the strength to move. He and five friends, all of them black, had been driving in a minibus taxi through the streets of Phoenix, a predominantly Indian suburb created from the forced racial segregation of apartheid in South Africa. So that's not Phoenix, Arizona. That's Phoenix, South Africa. So a mob surrounded them, dragged them from the taxi, made them lie on the pavement and beat them furiously, according to witnesses and video uh, footage obtained by the New York Times. Some of Mr. Adilamini's uh, friends managed to escape. Others were chased and beaten again by the crowd, which had been whipped up in recent days by a WhatsApp warning, a WhatsApp uh, app warning, uh, and reports of violence by black people streaming into their community to loot shopping centers. Mr. Adilamini uh, De, uh, barely made it across the street. He later uh, died of his injuries at the hospital, his family said. So South Africa was convulsed in recent months by, months by some of its worst civil unrest since the end of apartheid. The imprisonment of former President Jacob Zuma for refusing to appear before a corruption inquiry set off violent protests by his supporters. Soon, riots and looting erupted in parts of the country, fed by broad disgust at poverty, inequality, and the government's failure to provide even the most basic services like water or electricity. Officials have called the violence an insurrection and attempt to sabotage Mr. Zuma's rival and successor, President um, uh, Cyril uh, Ramposa, in part by stoking some of the nation's oldest racial, racial tensions. Nationwide, more than 340 people died in the mayhem. Many in stampedes or in or circumstances that remain unclear, but government officials have been alarmed by the dynamic that they say dangerously undermines the social order. Dozens of vigilante killings by ordinary citizens. The vigilanteism was especially pronounced in Phoenix, a working class community of about 180,000 at the country's east coast. Uh, 
The country's police minister said 36 people there, 33 of them black, were killed in what some officials are calling a massacre. 56 people have now been arrested in connection with the violence in Phoenix. Most of the people who died were innocent people who were traveling, said uh, Shali uh, Zikalala. The premier uh, of uh, KwaZulu, NATO Providence, where uh, Phoenix is located. Mobs of mostly Indian resident, residents worried that their community was under siege, erected roadblocks on street corners. They indiscriminately stopped black people and sometimes beat or killed them, the police said, inflaming the long, fragile relationship between black and Indian South Africans to marginalized groups under white apartheid rule. Now, I, I'm going to stop for the, the article for a moment and just tell you my point of view so far. I'm sorry, but what the fuck do goddamn Indians think they have a right to to South Africa? Why why do they think they have a right to the land and to the housing? And how the fuck does a minority attack and kill members of the majority? As I have said in a previous episode of the podcast, South Africa is generally praised for the way that they transitioned from apartheid. Um, uh, and uh, but in, but as this as this article clearly shows, there was no transfer of wealth, and those that had stolen land and resources from the country's black population still had the land and the resources after the transition. A bloodless revolution is only value if valuable if it is, in fact, a revolution. But to switch out the color of the politicians and to leave the populace in the same condition that they were in prior to apartheid provides no value at all. Now, black people are being beaten to death by some motherfucking goddamn Indians. The black government should decree that all land owned by non-blacks and I include those so-called coloreds in this, though I probably shouldn't, as they are almost always part of the problem rather than the solution, uh, will revert to the state and be redistributed to the black population under rules that will be set up to ensure fairness. So I believe that all of the land, all of the housing that are so-called owned by the Indians and the whites and any other group in South Africa should be taken by the state and it should be redistributed to the black people. So white people should not be allowed to, allowed to own land in South Africa. Neither should the racist motherfucking Indians. Now, here's more of this article. Phoenix set, sits atop a lush green hills of North Durban, almost completely surrounded by townships and shack settlements that are predominantly black. The communities bleed into each other, but are deeply divided by design. While the apartheid government deemed black and Indian people inferior to white, pop, to white population, Indians who first came to South Africa in large numbers as indentured laborers in the 1860s were placed above black people in the racial hierarchy. This afforded Indians access to better education, freer movement, and sturdier homes than their black neighbors. Differences that were enshrined in law uh, dictated where people lived and sowed lasting resentments, which it should have sown lasting resentments. Many black township residents still lived in, in crammed, low-slung houses with detached toilets. Uh, Phoenix, though plagued by crime and poverty, has more robust homes passed down through generations, some with multiple stories and security gates. So again, the, the apartheid uh, regime and policies have caused black people to live in misery 
And after apartheid ended, the black people were still forced to live in misery. Now, there was a lot more to this article, and it tried to present the Indian's point of view, but of course, I don't give a fucking shit about that. Uh, so these motherfuckers um, came in and took land that rightfully belonged to blacks, and now they want to have an elevated position in South African society. They feel they have a right to kill anyone black, and they want to uh, that they want to just to protect what they perceive uh, is theirs. Um, and even though what they perceive is theirs is uh, something that they receive through theft. So that's it for that story. But again, like I said, it pisses me off. Uh, I believe in Africa for Africans, and I don't believe that uh, that any non-African uh, uh, in South Africa should be allowed to own land. Uh, they should not uh, be allowed to own houses. And in fact, I don't, I think that uh, their businesses should be partially owned by the state, uh, and the state should distribute the uh, profits from those businesses to the population to get the black people out of poverty and allow them to move out of the townships. All right, let's go on to the next story. So this next story comes from Vanity Fair. And I think it's just uh, spot on about the idiot COVID uh, denier. So this is a COVID-19 update, uh, and it's about the conservative radio hosts all across America that are giving up their lives for their, their beliefs and the cause. So the article says conservative radio hosts all across America are lo losing their lives for the cause. In the past month alone, five talk radio personalities who were vocal COVID-19 deniers, anti-vaxxers, or anti-maskers have all died after contracting the virus. Most re recently was WNDB's Mark uh, uh, Bernier, uh, uh, a late Daytona, Florida talk radio host who dubbed himself, quote, Mr. Anti-Vax, end quote in December, while assuring his listeners that, quote, I'm not taking it, end quote. True to his word, Brenier uh, contracted uh, COVID-19 roughly three weeks ago, and his death was announced over the weekend by his radio station, which had awkwardly acknowledged his on-air anti-vaccine commentary just before his passing. WNBD was contacted for clarification regarding its COVID-19 safety policies, but the station did not respond. Though it might be assumed some right-wing uh, media figures are simply fe feeding into the anti-vax frenzy to gin up outrage and ratings, the spat of recent deaths makes, their, makes clear that for a number of them, opposition to the safe, effective vaccines and other pandemic mitigation efforts isn't just talk. Such radio rants against efforts to stop the pandemic come as Republican men a large segment of the talk radio audience have been shown to be particularly resistant to getting vaccinated. On August the 4th, Newsmax uh, fill-in host and longtime conservative talker Dick Farrell died from, a, from quote, severe damage, end quote, uh, from COVID-19 after spreading the, or spending the last weeks of his life uh, claiming uh, that the vaccine is, quote, a big bogus bullshit, end quote and referred to the pandemic as a, sc a scam-demic. 
and suggesting that the Delta variant is an elaborate ruse orchestrated by Anthony Fauci to help America to, to keep Americans fearing for their lives. And he said, quote, why take a vax uh, promoted by people who lied to you all along about masks, where the virus came from and the death toll? He wrote that in, July, in a July 3rd Facebook post. Upon contracting the virus, Pharrell was suddenly not willing to die for his previously held convictions, as one of his close friends, Amy Lee Hare, claimed that he encouraged her to get the shot before his death, saying, COVID-19 is no joke, he said. I wish I had gotten vaccinated. But too late, motherfucker, now you're dead. All right, but instead of taking scientifically backed precautions beforehand, Farrell opted to ask his Facebook followers if hydri, uh, hydroxychloroquine from Canada is safe in early July after uh, stating uh, when a government denies you access to uh, HCQ, it's obvious that they want you dead, end quote. It appears that Farrell was con convinced that masks and vaccines weren't saving Democratic politicians or dummy craps, as he called them, from uh, COVID-19, but rather that they had access to hydroxychloroquine while banning others from taking it. In a statement to the Post, a uh, Newsmax spokesperson noticed that Pharrell was a popular radio host in Florida and always a friend of Newsmax. We mourn his passing and hope everyone can learn from his unnecessary death uh, the importance of getting vaccinated. So Newsmax, which has been rallying uh, against the uh, uh, vaccine as well, is now saying that, uh, look at this dumb motherfucker, please don't die like him. So on August the 11th, Todd Tucker, a pro-Trump radio programmer, died following the onset of viral pneumonia as a result of COVID-19, according to his employer. Tucker had previously mocked the idea of receiving the vaccine, allegedly writing in a March Facebook post, please stop bragging that you got your COVID vaccine. What do you want us to say? Congratulations, lab rat, end quote. Within days of Tucker's death, religious uh, radio host Jimmy DeYoung Sr. was hospitalized for COVID-19 and died not long after, according to the Daily Beast. In February, DeYoung told his listeners that, COVID that the COVID-19 vaccine could, quote, be another form of government control of the people, end quote. During a segment on his show in which he and his guests regurgitated conspiracy theories about Pfizer using the vaccine to commit mass sterilization. So Nashville talk radio host and vaccine skeptic Phil Valentine allegedly expressed regrets after being hospitalized with COVID-19 in a blog post. Valentine, Valentine had advised those who were not in the, quote, high risk category uh, to not get the vaccine. And he bet that his odds of dying from COVID-19 were way less than 1%. But in late July, Valentine found himself in very serious condition, suffering from COVID uh, pneumonia, and suddenly reversed his stance on vaccines, according to his family members. They said, quote, Phil would like for his listeners to know that while he has never been an anti-vaxxer, which he was, so that's a lie, he regrets not being more vehemently pro-vaccine, end quote. His radio station, 99.7 WTN, shared in a statement, quote, he looks forward to being able to more vigorously advocate that position as soon as he's back on the air, which we hope, uh, all hope will be soon, end quote. On August the 21st, Valentine's employer announced that he had passed away. So, too late, motherfucker. 
So interestingly, uh, the article says, uh, Cumulus Media, which owns the station that Valentine worked for, quietly issued a company-wide vaccine mandate less than two weeks after Valentine's COVID-19 diagnosis captured national attention, according to RBR plus TVBR. On August the 11th, uh, Cumulus uh, CEO Mary Berner stated in a, a vi- or stated in a video message to all employees that everyone who works uh, in Cumulus Media uh, Media's uh, uh, corporate offices must be fully vaccinated by October the 11th. However, it is unclear if this mandate applies to the group's local stations like WTN. Uh, Berner has not discussed the mandate in public statements and cum, uh, Cumulus uh, spokesperson told RBR plus TVBR last month that, quote, the company is not commenting uh, publicly, end quote. Neither Cumulus Media nor WTN responded to requests for comments regarding employee vaccination requirements. So over the weekend, Joe Rogan, another professional talker who has suggested that his listeners uh, if young and healthy should not get vaccinated, contracted the COVID, contracted COVID-19. On Wednesday, the podcaster who hosts the Joe Rogan Experience on Spotify shared an Instagram video detailing his experience during which he acknowledged turning to an unproven treatment regimen that the FDA and CDC have strongly advised against. We immediately threw the kitchen sink at it. All kinds of meds, explained Rogan, while failing to say whether or not he's vaccinated. Uh, monoclonal antibodies, uh, ivermedicin, Z-Pak, uh, pre-prednosine, everything. And I also uh, got an NAD drip and a vitamin drip. Ivermedicin, a drug commonly sold as livestock dewormer, has made some people very sick, the FDA recently warned, in response to the wave of Americans who have used it in misguided attempts to treat COVID-19. So treating human medical uh, conditions with veterinary drugs can be very dangerous, the agency continued. The drug may not work at all, or it could worsen the illness and or may lead to serious potential life-threatening health complications. In the spring, Rogan was rebuked by Fauci for advising young people against getting COVID-19 vaccine. If you're like 21-year-old and you say to me, should I get vaccinated? I'll go, no, Rogan said in an April episode of his podcast. If you're a healthy person and you're exercising all the time and you're young and you're eating well, I don't think you really need to worry about this. Now, Joe Rogan didn't or hasn't died and is not likely to because he's relatively healthy and he's rich. So he's uh, even though he's not he didn't get vaccinated, he is taking drugs that the average person that he's talking to is not going to be able to afford. So uh, he's, he would have been better off getting vaccinated. But elsewhere, the article goes on, elsewhere in the conservative radio world, Eric Erickson, who hosts nationally syndicated talk show out of Atlanta, contem- condemned the national religious broadcasters for firing its spokesperson, Daniel Darling, after he appeared on MSNBC to advocate for evangelicals to get vaccinated. For the, the quote, for the national religious broadcasters to fire Dan for reasonable advocacy, advocacy of vaccinations is pretty damning indictment on the organization, end quote. Uh, Erickson wrote that in, in an August tweet. He, is all, he also called on anti-vaxxers within the religious community to stop pushing disinformation, writing on Twitter, quote, if you publicly identify yourself as a Christian and say the vaccine doesn't work, you need to repent for lying. 
I don't care whether you get the vaccine or not, but lying is sinful, end quote. But anyway, uh, let me end um, this uh, article with um, uh, who's the really, really the sick, sick motherfucker? These criminals that are convincing the gullible to put themselves in danger or those of us that are asking these criminals to uh, state their vaccine status um, and expecting them to be vaccinated. Fox News, Newsmax, One America are all ranting to their audience that they should not get vaccinated, but they have all put vaccine mandates or mass mandates in their businesses. You can tell that by by that fact that most of these people are just hucksters. They're trying to make a buck off other people's misery and death. So, like I always say, get the motherfucking vaccine, please. All right, let's go on to the next story. Uh, the update on the California recall. Uh, so a new poll has come out in the recall vote, and I talked uh, a little bit about the recall last week, and the fucking uh, Larry Elder, uh, who's a black, bizzo, uh, white supremacist that's likely to be named governor if the recall succeeds. Um, but... Um, uh, this the, this new poll came out uh, in Tuesday, and past polls had shown that Newsom, um, who is the current governor, governor with just a slight lead in the recall, but it, that showed that he was losing ground. I guess this put a fire under the Democrats' collective asses as they are all now running to California to try to help Newsom. Uh, but the new poll showed that roughly 58% of the registered voters in California say that they would um, uh, back Governor uh, Newsom uh, against a recall vote um, slated to take place uh, next Tuesday. Uh, and so that that's good news. So uh, a Suffolk University poll released Wednesday, which uh, surveyed 500 registered voters, found 41% of respondents said that they are in favor of a recall, while 57.8% of those polled say they want Newsom to remain governor of California. Just over half of those polled by the Suffolk uh, University said they approve of Newsom's performance as governor, while fewer than 40% did not approve. Now, Newsom is not out of the woods yet, and polling has been way off in recent years, but hopefully he will pull through. I say this not because I really like Newsom or that, the de- or that I really like the Democrats, but because if Newsom is recalled, the governorship would go to whatever candidate gets the most votes and, and, and a majority is not required. And currently that person, the person leading, albeit with only 20 percent of the vote, is a black white supremacist, Larry Elder. And so if we end up with that bitch running California, we might as well throw in the towel for 2022 and 2024 because the country is too fucked to be saved at that point. All right, let's go on to the next story. And this one, uh, self-proclaimed prophet of God, uh, says that his predictions about Trump uh, and Chump, yes, uh, that was a Freudian slip, uh, winning the 2020 election, uh, that that was right. And the fact that uh, Biden's in the White House um, uh, does, doesn't disprove what he had to say. And that if you if you make fun of his predictions, then God's going to get pissed at you. And this story comes from Right Wing Watch and the details uh, and it details the idiocy of one of the many religious uh, in the religious community. They claim that uh, God is still going to reinstate Trump to the White House. And, and they, of course, they just keep pushing the date further and further out. But uh, 
this is one that's still holding on to that lie. So right-wing pastor Hank Kuhneman has been one of the most obstinate and self-proclaimed prophets who uh, repeatedly guaranteed that former President Donald Trump would win re-election in 2020. For nearly a year, Kuhneman has has, uh, petulantly refused to apologize for his false prophecy, instead promising that God will reward those who stand with him while attacking those who have dared to criticize him. Despite the fact that President Joe Biden has been in the White House for more than eight months now, Kuhneman continues to insist that his prophecies regarding Trump's victory were accurate. Appearing on the Elijah Streams YouTube channel Tuesday, Kuhneman insisted that everyone who questions the accuracy of his prophecies or his standing as a prophet is insulting God and warned that God is testing people to, quote, to see really who's on the Lord's side right now, end quote. So Kuhneman claimed on August the 16th um, in 2020 that God prophesied through this vessel here that they would steal the election. Of course, if anyone watches this prophecy uh, that Kuhneman delivered on August the 16th, they will see that the message uh, then was the exact opposite of what he is now claiming. Uh, He asserted at that time that God would thwart all the plans of the enemy to sow chaos and steal the election. So he said in August the 16th that they would try to steal the election, but fail. And now he's saying that he said on August the 16th that they would steal the election. But that's bullshit. That's not what he said. So Kuhneman nonetheless asserted on Tuesday that anyone who calls him a false prophet is uh, failing a test laid out by God. And he said, quote, the way God operates is not subject to man's events, calendars, expectations. Uh, so that means it's not subject to our opinion. It's not subject to certain things being able to change. It's going to happen, and there's certain things that need to play out. And what God is doing is testing us to see really who is on the Lord's side right now. And of course, that's a bunch of mumbling, bumbling nonsense and bullshit. Uh, but that's uh, what he had to say. So I have a question. Are you a Republican listener? Is this what you believe? If you do, then the only thing I have to say to you is, what the fuck? You you are going to stand by this idiot motherfucker who prophesied that Trump was going to win the 2020 election, that even though they were that that people, so-called they, were going to attempt to steal it, that God would thwart all of the plans of the enemy and that Trump would win. And now that he obviously lost, this motherfucker is just pushing back, saying that it's going to happen, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. So uh, luckily, uh, in this case, God's not in charge. Uh, the people who voted are in charge, and Biden is and will be the president, uh, at least until 2024. All right, now let's move on to the next story. And uh, this last story is from Afro.com, which is a Uh, black uh, news uh, site. And this is about the uh, ex-prosecutor in the Amman uh, Aubrey case. So a former Georgia prosecutor was indicted on September the 2nd on misconduct charges, alleging that she used her position to shield the men who chased and killed Amman Aubrey from being charged with crimes immediately after the shooting. Uh, so if you don't remember uh, this case, 
uh, 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 three white vigilantes, uh, a father and son team, and a third man chased down Aman Aubrey, who was simply jogging through the neighborhood, uh, cut him off with a truck, jumped out of their vehicles, and then shot him in the chest with a shotgun. Uh, and then uh, they uh, stated to the police immediately afterwards that they thought that he, uh, that is, uh, they thought that the black man, Aban Aubrey, uh, was someone who had, they had seen in a garage before and that there had been some thefts and that he might have been the thief. Uh, of course, nothing at all shows that he had did, Aban Aubrey had done anything wrong whatsoever. Uh, but in any case, the indictment resulted from an investigation that Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr requested last year into uh, local prosecutors' handling of Ama, uh, of Aubrey's slaying uh, after a cell phone video of the shooting and a delay on charges sparked national outcry. So um, uh, Carr, who is a Republican, said in a statement, while, quote, while an indictment was returned today, our file is not closed and we will continue to investigate in order to pursue justice, end quote. So Amon Aubrey was killed on February the 23rd, 2020, after a white father and son, Greg and Travis uh, McMichael, armed themselves and pursued the 25-year-old black man in a pickup truck after spotting him running in their neighborhood outside the coastal city of Burnswick, about 70 miles uh, south of Savannah. A neighbor, William Roddy Bryan, joined the chase and took uh, cell phone photos of Travis McMichael, shooting Aubrey at close range with a shotgun. The McMichael said that they believe Aubrey was a burglar and that he was shot after attacking Travis Michael. That's what they said, fucking asshole liars. But the police and the police did not charge any of them immediately following the shooting. And the McMichaels and Brand remained free for more than two months until the cell phone video of the shooting was uh, leaked online. And Governor Brian Kemp asked the Georgia Bureau of Investigation to take over the case. Both McMichaels and Brian were charged with murder and other crimes in May uh, 2020 and faced trial this fall. Prosecutors say that Aubrey was merely jogging in their neighborhood and was unarmed when Travis McMichael shot him. They say there is no evidence Aubrey had committed any crime. Greg McMichael had worked as an investigator in Johnson's office. This is the prosecutor that has now been indicted. So one of the killers had worked in her office, having retired in 2019. Evidence introduced in the pre-trial hearings in the murder case uh, shows that he called Johnson's cell phone and left her a message soon after the shooting occurred. And he said, quote, uh, Jackie, this is Greg. Um, could you call me um, as soon as possible? My son and I have been involved in a shooting and I need some advice right away. So this motherfucker uh, killer called uh, the prosecutor uh, to get advice on how to get out, get away with murder. So the indictment says that Johnson showed favor and affection toward Greg McMichael in the investigation and interfered with the police officers at the scene by directing that Travis McMichael should not be placed under arrest. Lee Merritt, an attorney for uh, Aubrey's mother, uh, said in a statement in a, uh, in a statement on September the second that prosecutors quote must be held accountable when they interfere with investigations in order to protect friends and law enforcement end quote and I could not agree more that is definitely the case. 
All right, that is it uh, for the news, and we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get to the segment. This shit is for us. Welcome back. So uh, in this week's segment of This Shit Is For Us, what I want to talk about uh, is the making of a race trader. And um, I want to uh, really confront the concept of the race trader. Um, and I talked about this in a previous episode of the podcast, but I want to review it more from a psychological perspective this time. My original goal was to take a subject like Larry Elder or Jesse Lee Peterson and find an article that talks about how they came to think, or from my point of view, not to think the way they do. Uh, but in what I think proves that the internet searches are not a good research tool, all I could find was what these assholes said and what others said about what they said, but it did not address the core of what causes someone who is born black to advocate positions that are clearly an indisputable anti-black or indisputably anti-black. So instead of doing a character study, I want to review some expert excerpts from a scholarly paper uh, that I found uh, called Black Men Who Portray Their Race, uh, 20th Century Literary Representations of the Black Male Race Trader. Now, this paper restricts my approach a bit because it is focused only on males and there are uh, women race traders as well. And also it's focused on literary representations, which is not my intended uh, focus. So um, to round out the discussion, I'll also review an article by Solomon Jones writing in the Philadelphia Inquirer uh, called The Frightening Effectiveness of Black Sellouts. Uh, and there he's reviewing uh, Candace Owens, uh, who's one of the more blatant uh, race traders of, uh, of late. So uh, through these two sources, um, uh, though they're not the type of sources that I initially wanted to use in this week's segment, uh, I do think that they provide enough information to paint a picture of the present-day race trader and show what motivates them to behave um, and to believe and what causes them to act against the interest of their own community. So I want to say at the, on the onset uh, that becoming a black race trader is not about someone advocating against their own self-interest. Instead, this is about someone selling out their friends and family and compatriots for personal gain. So though I think it is um, a lot of the race traders today actually believe the bullshit that they say, their original motivation was personal gain. So let's review some excerpts from the paper uh, that I find to be enlightening. First up, the paper pre pre uh, presents the view that some other prominent people in history uh, or the head that spoke on the topic. So it says that in the black in black America, what looks uh, like to be a race trader has largely been understood in terms of those behaviors associated with the figure of the quote, uncle Tom, end quote, 
This can be observed with the frequency with which blacks use the phrase Uncle Tom to characterize those that black people deem to be as race traitors. Uh, Founder and curator of the Jim Crow Museum, David Pilgrim, identifies two variants of this figure in the black popular imagination. The first variant is a person who is a docile, loyal, religious, uh, contented servant who accommodates himself to a lowly status. Uh, The Tom character, uh, this variant, uh, coincides broadly with the trope of the, quote, good Negro, end quote, or as he is affectionately known, quote, the white man's Negro, end quote. Uh, This kind of black person that whites approve of because he knows his place and is careful to keep it. In the past, being a good Negro uh, looked something uh, like the person who often, but not always, worked for whites in a menial job, uh, the black person who showed deference to whites by using formal titles like sir and ma'am, shuffling and grinning and laughing while in the presence of whites, and the black person who uh, depended on whites for protection and provision, much like a slave depended on his or her master during slavery. Now, because of the reciprocal nature of his or her um, a relationship with whites, black Americans came to regard the good Negro uh, as a sort of modern-day version of the house Negro. As Malcolm X explained, much like his or her enslaved predecessor, the 20th century type of house Negro uh, identifies with whites to such a degree that he mistakenly believes his well-being is intertwined uh, with their fate. Um, Huey P. Newton, on the other hand, argued that this was no mistake. The good Negro knew full well that what he stood to gain uh, more by uh, helping to maintain the white power structure than he or she could gain by trying to overthrow it. So now I don't necessarily agree with uh, this house Negro uh, term. Um, uh, I, I think, uh, first of all, I don't think that generally speaking that they, that house Negro was a term that was used. It was house slave. Uh, and this characterization is not accurate in my opinion. The house slave versus a field slave was a construct created by whites in a way to divide, uh, as a way to divide black people. House slaves were still slaves. They still did not have any rights, and they were also abused and brutalized for perceived minor infractions. Women who had a skill that could benefit the white slave holder by working inside were put inside, and so were uh, men, black men, that had a skill that they felt would be better suited to white people inside. These were not more beneficial, so to speak, than the field slave. Uh, but it's just that it, it, it was a matter of what, where the most value could be extracted from the slave to the benefit of the slave master. So, um, it, 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 I, I think one of the ways to look at it is there was no merit to the classification. Uh, you couldn't work your way up from the field to the house, uh, except when, if you exhibited at a skill, that had not been known beforehand, then they might bring you into the house. Uh, like if they heard you uh, playing an instrument or something like that, uh, and then decided to bring you in the house to play to their friends during some uh, party or ball or something. But but it wasn't based on merit. Again, it was based upon the maximum value that could be extracted from black people to the benefit of white. 
So, um, uh, so for me, I just don't think that the house slave or, or, or house Negro is a proper term to use. But in, in any case, the article goes on. Indeed, sociologist uh, Gunnar Maidraw confirms that in some instances, the good Negro was known to serve as an informant or a mouthpiece for whites, allowing them to gain influence over the blacks and limit their progress. So I definitely agree with the term the good Negro, uh, just not house Negro or house slave. Uh, but definitely there are those good Negroes, those people that are, that defer, uh, to whites to the detriment of themselves and to, uh, other black people. Uh, but the article goes on, while he may look somewhat different, not much has changed with regard to the good Negro of 2019. Instead of gaining close proximity to whites through his role as a servant, the modern good Negro gains proximity to whites by virtue of where he lives, where he works, and where he goes to school. Likewise, no longer is he expected to be deferential when interacting with whites. Rather, he is now expected to be respectable. Despite these changes, one thing remains the same. He does not dare openly critique the white power structure. Now, this I totally agree with. The modern race trader gains proximity to whites and uh, to what the trader believes is white value, by never critiquing white behavior and by instead parroting the ideology of the oppressor in order to curry favor. Now, the second variant of uh, the Uncle Tom uh, that, uh, that Pilgrim identifies is the ambitious black person who subordinates himself in order to achieve a more favorable status in the dominant society. And this is the, the, the Tom character. Uh, no doubt this uh, variant evokes the popular, uh, uh, popular trope of the sellout as used by black Americans. The sellout subordinates himself by allowing whites to use him to impede other blacks' progress. As a legal scholar, uh, Randall Kennedy explains in Sellout, the politics of racial betrayal, this trope has been used as an epitaph for black Americans who refer uh, to blacks who, quote, knowingly or with gross negligence, act against the interest of the race as a whole, end quote. And it goes on to identify a number of different ways that black people can be sellouts. And the first of these is passing, which is when you attempt to pass for a white person in everyday life by concealing or denying the fact that you are black. Along these same lines is claiming to be, quote, mixed, end quote, uh, in which you identify yourself as being multiracial and attempt to pass yourself off as something other than just a plain old black. And this is a sentiment um, that is, uh, uh, has a familiar, uh, familiar refrain, uh, I've got Indian in me. And a bunch of us claim to be uh, descended of 100% uh, or like my grandmother was, uh, was 100% uh, Cherokee or whatever, in most cases is fucking bullshit. Next, there's acting white, uh, where you, uh, where you dress, talk, dance, etc., like a white person. And it's important to distinguish passing, which has more to do with your physical features, typically one's complexion, hair texture, uh, length, uh, uh, hair texture and length, nose shape, etc., resembling those of a white person from acting white, which has to do with, uh, conforming to white social expectations. If acting white has to do with what is going on on the outside, uh, then uh, being an Oreo has to do with what's going on on the inside. Uh, simply defined, it is when you uh, look black uh, but think white. 
And this can include behaviors such as identifying as a Republican or opposing uh, policies like affirmative action. So the author of this work is more sympathetic to the race trader than I am because, uh, and, and the author tries to state that a person can be accused of being a Tom simply because they get good grades uh, or they like country music or something like that. But that isn't the point. The point is what is meant when he says that they oppose policies like affirmative action. Uh, it is when you advocate for a position that is the antithesis of what would provide value to the black community, then you're an Uncle Tom and a race trader. It is not about your choice in music or dress or even the way you talk. It's not about you identifying with a racist organization, uh, or it is rather about you identifying with a racist organization, which the Republican Party is, uh, and that would uh, and, and those that act as an apologist for this type of behavior expels arguments that would be the same if a black person, to me, it would be the same as if a black person joined the Ku Klux Klan or a skinhead group. If you're going to make excuses for black Republicans, you would also have to make the same excuse for a black KKK member. Now, the rest of the paper is a review of a number of books um, that have the race trader as a theme, and I will not review that info um, as it is a scholarly discussion, and in my opinion, not particularly useful. But I will uh, cover one part where the author talks about tokenism as uh, racial treason. treason. So the author presents the following. Tokenism represents an act of racial treason in that it slows the progress of the race to uh, in the color line. First, it serves to perpetuate the stereotype of the Uncle Tom. Uh, if those who are in positions of authority and affluence are expected to conduct themselves uh, as Uncle Toms, how can there ever be equality? Second, tokenism slows progress as tokens are less likely to fight for the race in a radical ways due to their limited sense of power. Because they are, apparent, uh, they are appointed by whites, tokens can easily be replaced. Therefore, they lack the ability to speak out without risking what limited power and influence they have among whites. In some cases, they are even willing to allow uh, harm to come to the race in order to protect their position. Now, this, I believe, is a motivation of the modern-day race trader. They are willing not only to allow but to cause harm to bl the black race as a whole to protect the social, economic, and other material gains that they have achieved by being anti-black. But next, I wanted to review some of the article uh, from the uh, frightening effectiveness of black sellouts. And this is an article by Solomon Jones, and he's discussing Candace Owens, uh, a so-called uh, black conservative that has made a fortune ridiculing black people on shows like Fox News. Um, and Solomon says the following about her. The rise of white supremacy... Um, the, I'm sorry, the, the rise of white supremacy has been debated at length uh, in the wake of the deadly shooting, uh, shootings that killed uh, 50 black people in two New Zealand mosques, but the rise of the black sellout has been largely ignored. However, the New Zealand shooter, like other white supremacists, clearly understands the power of black voices parroting right, uh, far-right rhetoric. Uh, I believe that's why uh, he wrote his 74-page manifesto on hate. He cited black conservative uh, commentator Candace Owens as one of his greatest uh, influencers. 
So Owens, uh, 29, um, who uh, morphed in, uh, from a Donald Trump critic to a Donald Trump supporter around 2017, has become a leading critic of uh, left-leaning black activist groups. Among her many controversial statements is her claim that Black Lives Matter activists are, quote, whiny toddlers pretending to be oppressed, end quote. Such pronouncements fly in the face of the re reality that, as of 2016, unarmed blacks were five times as likely as their white counterparts to be shot and killed by police in America. That doesn't matter when a black person repeats the same false claims of racist white supremacy wins. That's what makes uh, black sellout so dangerous to African Americans, religious minorities, and others. It is also what makes them so useful to those who hate us. Owens has done a far better uh, has done far better as a right wing mouthpiece than she ever did in her previous life as a Trump Trump critic. Since launching uh, to the, or lurching to the right, Owens has been appointed as communications director for a conservative students group, Turning Point USA, and she has been featured prominent, uh, in, at, pro, at, prominently at conservative gatherings. President Trump called her, a, quote, a very smart thinker, end quote, and since he's dumb as a motherfucking box of rocks, he's saying she's smart should be an insult, but it's not to her. She's been uh, put up front to carry out her duty as a sellout because when a black person repeats the false claims of racist white supremacy, wins. To be sure, Owens is not the first black person to garner attention by spouting right-wing views. She's just the latest. In truth, pe uh, people such as Owens have always served as tools of white supremacy. I learned uh, as much in, in 2000 when I visited the slave castles of Ghana, and this is the Arthur speaking, and heard about uh, African spies who were placed in holding cells by European slave traders. Their sole job was to listen and report back to thwart any plans for rebellion. In the Americas, similar, similar tactics uh, became the norm. Black overseers were used to enforce the brutality of slavery, House slaves, sometimes uh, born of the rape of black women by white slaveholders, helped to form the light-skinned versus dark-skinned caste system that undergird chattel slavery. For uh, such taxes, tactics to be effective, it was necessary to control the thinking of the enslaved. They had to be convinced that it was right for blacks to be oppressed and that challenging that oppression was an affront to the order of things. That kind of mental enslavement helped to foil rebellions, such as the 1822 uprising, uh, which was, um, or, or that was planned by Denmark Vesey, a former slave uh, in Charleston, South Carolina. Vesey, an educated, skilled carpenter, had purchased his freedom some years before and listed up to 9,000 slaves in a plan to capture armaments, kill slaveholders, and free the enslaved. The rebellion was halted before it began when a house servant warned the whites about the impending uprising and 35 black people were hanged as a result. In essence, the black sellouts have always helped to maintain white supremacy, and they've done so uh, because they've adopted the mindset of their oppressors. That's what stopping uh, the spread of white. Uh, that's why stopping the spread of white supremacy, white supremacist violence will require more than a change of heart on the part of white people, it will also require a change in thinking by blacks who sold us out. Now, that's the article. And for my part, I do not think that ending white supremacy will require a change of heart on the part of the white people at all. 
what we need to change is a system that supports white supremacy. It will require that we deal with the blacks who sell us out, but we are not in a position to improve their thinking or to dissuade them from the notion that, uh, that gains obtained from the backs of the rest of us are not worth it. So we will need to deal with them in other ways. For how to deal with them, uh, read the pamphlet, David Walker's Appeal. Um, and uh, so I'm not going to say it on this podcast, but the, the pamphlet, David Walker's Appeal, is quite clear on what we need to do to traitors. All right, that is it for this segment. Um, this shit is for us. And as I usually say every week, um, that uh, segment um, is by me, a black man. For my black brothers and sisters, uh, if you aren't black, you can still listen to it, but you may have questions. And if you do, send me an email at, to feedback at rationalblackthought.com and I'll try to explain it to you. Okay, so we'll take a quick break and when we come back, we'll get to Bible study with Atheist Mike. Welcome back, everyone. So, Bible study with Atheist Mike, and this week is uh, more of the full version, and I'm already at an hour and 30 minutes, so this is going to be uh, quite a long episode. But let's get to it. So, in this week's segment of Bible study with Atheist Mike, I want to do two things. First, I want to give a brief history of the Bible, and uh, like I said in the intro, not uh, not Bible history, but the history of the Bible itself, how it came to be. And I also want to provide a brief history of the various Roman Catholic councils that was used uh, and also what was decided in those councils since that had a big impact on uh, the creation of the Bible. So the first item I want to use is an article uh, from history.com that goes through the history of the construction of the Bible. So the Old Testament is the first section of the Bible covering the creation of earth through Noah and the flood, Moses and more, uh, finishing with the Jews being expelled to Babylon. The Bible's Old Testament is uh, very familiar familiar to the Hebrew Bible, uh, or similar rather to the Hebrew Bible, which has its origins in the ancient religion of Judaism. The exact beginnings of the Jewish religion are unknown, but the first known mention of Israel is an Egyptian inscription from the 13th century BC. So the earliest uh, known mention of the Jewish god Yahweh is an inscription related to the king of Moab in the 9th, 9th century BC. It is speculated that Yahweh was probably adapted from the mountain god Yahu in ancient Seir of Edom. It was during the reign of Hezekiah of Judah in the 8th century BC that historians believe uh, what would become the Old Testament began to take form, the result of royal scribes recording royal history and heroic legends. During the reign of Josiah in the 6th century BC, the books of Deuteronomy and Judges were compiled and added. The final form of the Hebrew Bible developed over the next 200 years when Judah was swallowed up by the expanding Persian Empire. Following the conquest of Alexander the Barbarian, or Great as they like to call him, the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek in the 3rd century BC. 
known as the Septuagint. This Greek translation was uh, initiated at the request of King uh, Ptolemy of Egypt uh, to be included in the Library of Alexandria. The Septuagint was the version of the Bible used by early uh, Christians in Rome. Now, uh, if you don't know, Ptolemy uh, was the was a king or pharaoh of Egypt, but he was white and not the original uh, African uh, kings or pharaohs. So they they had took over, but continued the tradition of the pharaonic con- uh, tradition, uh, but they weren't true pharaohs. So anyway, going on, the book of Daniel was written during this period and included in the Septuagint at the last moment, though the text itself claims to have been written sometime around 586 B.C., but it wasn't. So the New Testament um, uh, tells the story of the life of Jesus and the early days of Christianity. Most notably, Paul's uh, efforts to spread Jesus's teaching. It collects 27 books, all originally uh, written in Greek. Now, the sections of the New Testament concerning Jesus are called the Gospels and were written about 40 years after the earliest written Christian materials. So the Gospels weren't written first. They were written about 40 years after the first written materials, which were the letters of Paul, uh, known as the Epistles. So if you thought that Paul uh, and uh, Acts and the, and the Epistles uh, came after the uh, Gospels, that's not how it worked out. Uh, it was it was the Epistles, the writings of Paul that came first, and then the Gospels were written after that. So Paul letter, Paul's letters were uh, distributed by churches sometime around 50 A.D., uh, possibly just before Paul's death. Uh, scribes copied the letters and kept them in circulation. As circulation continued, the letters were collected into books. Some of the church, inspired by Paul, began to write and circulate their own letters, and, to histor- and, and so historians believe that some of the books of the New Testament that are attributed to Paul were, in fact, written by disciples and imitators. So not even all of the books of the Bible that were supposedly written by Paul were in fact written by Paul. Uh, as, uh, and um, uh, so as, uh, as Paul's words were circulated, an oral tradition began in churches telling stories about Jesus, uh, including teachings, teachings and accounts of post-resurrection appearances, uh, sections of the New Testament attributed to uh, Paul talk about Jesus with a first-hand feeling, but Paul never knew Jesus except in visions that he had, uh, and the Gospels were not yet written at the time of Paul's letters. So Paul didn't really know anything about Jesus from the Gospels because the Gospels were not written at that point. All he had heard was the oral traditions uh, that had been uh had been circulating. So the oral traditions within the church formed the substance of the Gospels, and the earliest books, uh, the earliest book of which is Mark, was written about 70 AD, 40 years after the death of Jesus. Now, it is theorized that many, uh, that there may have been an original document of sayings by Jesus known as the Q source, uh, which was adapted into the narratives of the Gospel. All four Gospels were published anonymously. Uh, but historians believe that the books were given the name of Jesus' disciples to provide de- uh, direct leaks to Jesus and lend greater authority. In other words, to lie and to trick people into thinking that uh, they were written by people who were contemporaries of Jesus, but again, they were not. 
Matthew and Luke were next on the chronology. Both used Mark as a reference, but Matthew is considered to have another separate source known as the M source, and it contains uh, some different material from Mark. Both books also stress the proof of Jesus' divinity more than Mark did. The book of John, written about 100 AD, was the final of the four and has a reputation uh, for hostility to Jesus, uh, Jesus' Jewish contemporaries. Uh, so all four books cover the life of Jesus with many similarities, but sometimes uh, gross contradictions in their portrayals. Each is considered to have its own political and religious agenda linked to its authorship. For instance, the, the books of Matthew and Luke present different accounts of Jesus' birth and all contradict each other about the resurrection. The book of Revelation, which is the final book of the Bible, is an example of a apocalyptic literature that predicts the final celestial war through uh, prophecy. Authorship is ascribed to John, but little else is known about the writer. According to the text, um, it, it is written around 95 AD on an island off the coast of Turkey. Some scholars believe it is uh, less a prophecy and more a response to the Roman destruction of the great uh, temple uh, and Jerusalem. And if you remember when we went through the book of Revelation, we talked about that, that it was essentially written uh, a contemporary trustees on what was going on in that part of the world at the time. It wasn't about prophecy at all. Now, this text is still used by evangelical Christians to interpret um, uh, events in expectation of the end times, and elements of it find uh, frequent use in popular entertain entertainment, movies, etc. So, surviving documents from the 4th century show that different councils within the church released a list to guide how various Christian texts should be treated. Now, the, and so we're kind of switching now to the to the to the council. So, uh, the um, the earliest known uh, attempt to create a canon uh, in the same respect as the New Testament was in the second century uh, by uh, Roman uh, Marcion, a Turkish businessman and church leader. Marcion's work focused on the Gospel of Luke and the letters of Paul disapproving of the effort the Roman church expelled Marcion. Second century Syria writer, or Syrian writer uh, Tatan uh, attempted to create a canon by weaving the four Gospels together at the Detesseron. Uh, 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 the uh, Maturian canon, which is believed to date around 200 AD, is the earliest compilation of conical texts resembling the New Testament. Uh, it was not until the 5th century that all uh, of the different Christian churches came to a basic agreement on the biblical canon. The books that eventually were considered canon reflect the times that they were embraced as much uh, as the times of the events they portrayed. So what that means is that it was more about... Um, it was more about the the, the books that... Um, the times that they that they were um, that they were released in more so than than what they actually portrayed to determine whether or not it was canon. So during the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, books not originally written in Hebrew uh, but Greek, such as Judith Maccabees, uh, were excluded from the Old Testament, and these are known as the Apocrypha and are still included in the Catholic Bible. 
So we had talked about that once before as well, as that uh, so-called, there's a a 500-year period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, which because these books were uh, uh, not originally written in Hebrew, but they were written in Greek, Greek they were not considered to be canon, but uh, they were contemporary to all the other writing, just ongoing. So for them not to be considered the word of God, was it was purely and simply an act of a man. So additional uh, biblical text has been discovered, such as the Gospel of Mary, which is part of the larger Berlin Gnostic Codex that is found in Egypt in 1896. Uh, 50 further um, unused biblical texts were discovered in, in Nag Hammadi in Egypt in, in Egypt in 1945, five known as the Gnostic Gospels. Among the Gnostic Gospels were the Gospel of Thomas, which purports to be uh, previously hidden sayings by Jesus presented in collaboration with his twin brother. Uh, so uh, by that gospel, Jesus had a twin brother. Uh, and the Gospel of Philip, uh, which implies a marriage between Jesus and Mary Magdalene, uh, and the original texts are believed to date back to around 120 A.D. So, very contemporary with the the, the books of the Gospel uh, and uh, the subsequent writing. So, uh, there's also the Book of Judas, which was found in Egypt in uh, in 1970, which is dated to around 280 A.D. And it is believed uh, by some to contain secret conversations between Jesus and his betrayer, Judas. Now, the, these have never become part of the official biblical canon, but stem from the same traditions and can be read as alternative views of the same stories and lessons. So these texts are, uh, are, are taken as indications of the diversity of early Christianity. But, uh, but in, in, what, I'm, what I would say is because they contradict so much what is, that is canon uh, in uh, the, um, the Christian church as it relates to the Bible, uh, these could just as e- easily have been uh, the word of God as those that men decided were in fact the word of God. Uh, because it's all just a man-made uh, hoax. Okay, now we've reviewed the Bible and see that it was pieced together over a number of years and that um, there was no clear ideological or, or ideological or theological consistency to it. Now let's review the consuls in detail uh, and, and determine um, what they had to say and what they were referring to. So the first of the councils was the council of uh, first council of Nicaea in 13... Or, or, or 325 A.D., and that council decided that the uh, that Arianism, the belief that the that uh, the Son of God did not always exist, but was created and uh, uh, was created by the Father, and therefore was distinct from the Father. That uh, the first council of Nicaea declared this belief to be heretical, uh, and uh, as did the first council of Constantinople, which we will get to in a bit. So the first council of Nicaea also set the date for Easter, so the date for uh, the resurrection, and that Easter date was chosen so as not to conflict or be on the same day as the Jewish Passover. So that was the only reason that day was selected. Uh, also, there there was a decision on Miletus of Lycopolis, uh, Lycopolis 
uh, who was the founder and namesake of the Miletians, who refused to receive communion uh, or receive in communion those Christians who had renounced their faith during the persecution and then later repented of their choice. So basically, uh, what um, what they were saying was that uh, that if you if you uh, repudiated your faith, you could not uh, come back. So. Uh, the, then also the, the, the declaration of the faith of the church was created, uh, and that's uh, some bullshit about I believe in God the Father and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then uh, the canon law, the body of laws, regulations, and uh, disciplines made or adopted by the ecclesiastical authority, uh, and there were 20 uh, uh, such that were is issued by this council, including several addressing the primacy of the Roman uh, Antioch and, and Alexandrian patriarchs of the church. So then the first council of uh, Constantinople, which happened in 381 AD, uh, and um, uh, again, they redebated uh, whether or not God, uh, the Son of God was actually a God and determined that it was. Uh, but I think it's, it's, it's important to note that, uh, that, that uh, almost 400 years after Jesus' death, uh, the, uh, they were still debating whether or not he was a god or a man or both. Uh, after that, there was a first council of Ephesians, uh, or, or Ephesus rather, and that was in 431 AD. Um, and the, the, in that particular one, uh, teachings including the, um, uh, the about the mother of God. So uh, there was veneration for the Virgin Mary that was agreed to, uh, and um, and there were some that uh, thought that to say that would imply that uh, they didn't believe that Christ was truly God, uh, and, and so they changed to say that that Mary was the mother of God. So God, so so therefore Jesus was a God. So the, the council formally condemned those that were against um, saying that that Mary was the mother of God. Um, also, uh, the, the the divine nature of Jesus was again uh, debated, and uh, the church decided that again that Jesus was in fact God. And there were a number of other things that they talked about, which were of less importance. Uh, then after that, there was the Council of, uh, uh, Chalcedon uh, uh, in 451 AD, and it declares that Jesus Christ is both truly God and truly man. Uh, and, uh, also, uh, there were, um, three chapters, um, three people in writings, uh, uh, persons of writings, uh, that, um, uh, were repudiated. Uh, when they were trying to say that Jesus was, in fact, not God. The Third Council of Constantinople happened in 680 to 681 AD, uh, and they then um, uh, talked about uh, Jesus Christ uh, had two natures and one will, um, and, and the council repudiated that, so it wasn't that uh, that Jesus was uh, was two natures. He was only one nature, which was God, according to them. Uh, and then uh, teaching that the that Jesus had uh, two natures, but only one energy, and that was repudiated as well. 
Then the second council of Nicaea happened in 787 AD, and uh, the 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 practice of destroying icons and images uh, was repudiated. So uh, they had begun to think that the uh, that having uh, icons and and idols were was idol worship, uh, but the church said that it wasn't. That keeping dead or parts of dead bodies and all that sort of thing uh, was okay, uh, and having uh, statues and everything else that they prayed to was not idol worship. And uh, so that was pretty much it for the seven major councils. There were some others, uh, but uh, they were not uh, considered to be um, the global councils uh, like the first seven. Okay, so uh, the the 39 books of the Old Testament from the Bible uh, form the Bible of Judaism, while the Christian Bible includes these books and also the 27 books from the New Testament. The list of books included in the Bible is known as the canon. Uh, that is, the canon refers to the books regarded as inspired by God and uh, authoritative for faith and life. No church created the canon, but the churches and the councils generally accepted the list of books recognized by believers everywhere as inspired. It was actually not until 370 or 367 AD that the church father, um, uh, Anatherius, uh, first provided the complete listing of the 66 books belonging to the canon. So, again, nearly 400 years after Jesus existed, did they collect and agree to a list of 66 books. Uh, and he distinguished those from other books that were widely circulated uh, at the time. And he noted that these 66 books were the ones and the only ones universally accepted. But again, it was just merely a man who said that. So years after the supposed death of Jesus, the church was still arguing about whether or not Jesus was a God, which books were inspired and which were not. And uh, what you believe to be self-evident today was not so during the contemporary times of the person called Jesus, nor for years after his death. There is no way that this collection of nonsense argued about for hundreds of years could be the uh, divine uh, word of a deity. Uh, Not only is it not the word of a non-existent deity, it is not even particularly useful. All right, that is it for this week's segment of the uh, Bible study with Atheist Mike. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll close out the podcast. All right. Uh, we'll close out the podcast with um, some celebrities and fans remembering the actor Michael K. Williams, uh, who died this week. So the entertainment industry took a hit after learning of award-winning actor Michael K. Williams' death on Labor Day, September the 6th. The 54-year-old was discovered unresponsive in his Brooklyn penthouse uh, with what appeared to be heroin on a table nearby. Williams' death was uh, suspectedly caused by a drug overdose. Williams appeared in several popular series like Lovecraft Country and Boardwalk Empire, but was most known in the black community for his captivating role as Omar from The Wire. Family, friends, and fans of the late actor all took to social media to express their condolences 
and share personal antecedents and special memories of their industry brother. Singer Mariah Carey posted a, a throwback picture of her and Williams on Twitter, tweeting, quote, a beautiful soul, a beautiful person. I'll miss you always. Thank you for blessing us with your talent, end quote. And actor and comedian uh, Marlon Wayans uh, uh, posted an emotional tribute to his late friend on Instagram, showing a video of Williams and Wayans greeting each other at the Respect movie premiere with the caption, quote, my last embrace, love you, my bro, end quote. Now, rapper 50 Cent, who is a fucking bitch, and so I don't even know why I want to talk about him, uh, faced backlash over his uh, poorly timed Instagram post that used Williams' death to promote his latest TV show, Raising Canaan, which I am not going to watch because 50 Cent is a Trump dick-sucking motherfucker. So the post was almost immediately deleted, but not before fans caught wind of it, calling the rapper insensitive, a wild dude, and petty, uh, which he's all of that and more. He's a stupid motherfucker. So Williams' death comes just five months after rapper DMX tragic overdose and ultimate death. Uh, the untimely passing of these beloved giants is drawing more attention uh, to the need for substance abuse and addiction intervention across the board. And though I agree that Mr. Williams was a great actor and that he advanced the cause of the LGBTQ plus community uh, and the, and the uh, role that um, those in that community could play in film, the fact that he, he likely died of an OD makes him a cliche rather than a role model. We need to find a way to help the members of our community to deal with their issues in a healthy way rather than for them to continue to fall victim to the many demons caused by racism in America. And yes, I am playing the race card and saying that this is a contributing factor in Mr. Williams' death. So uh, again, I think he was a great actor. Uh, really brought a lot of energy and and um, uh, depth uh, to the roles that he played. Uh, certainly sorry to see him go, and even more sorry that it was uh, due to uh, drug addiction and an overdose. All right, that is it for the podcast. So I want to remind you, the intro music is Transcend by K-I-R-K, and the outro music is Ending by Micaiah Beats. This podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google, Stitcher, Amazon, and many other platforms. If it's not available on the platform where you typically get your podcast, please send me an email to feedback at rationalblackthought.com and I'll get it added. Once it is on your podcast, if your podcast platform allows it, please subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. And if you can do so, leave me a five-star or maximum star review. And when you leave that review, also tell me what it is that you like about the podcast. I'd like to leave you, uh, as I always do, with these words from Frederick Douglass. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom yet depreciate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want the rain without the thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. This struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, and it may be both moral and physical, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, 
and it never will. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time, keep fighting for our right to be black and beautiful.